This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Inspirational, Informational, and Transparent Aviation Careers Podcast. Uh, Today we have a special guest, Brian Stone, to discuss how he successfully navigated through the process of receiving an FAA first-class medical with type 1 diabetes. But before we begin, a few announcements. You know, if you have any questions, comments, inspirational stories, or announcements, please write us at feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. Just like uh, Brian, who we're going to have on here in a minute, he wrote into us a couple of years ago, and now we're having him on just to go through his the actually progress he's made with this. Don't forget at aviationcareerspodcast.com, you can find the scholarships guide, the career coaching, and other various online courses. And if you want the scholarships guide for free, there's a lot of people that have given money, and you can use the coupon code pay it forward uh, to get the scholarships guide for free. They go pretty quickly. And the way that works is in the pay it forward campaign. If you become a patron of the podcast for every $10 we raise, we give away one scholarships guide. So not only are we bringing this content, we're also giving away a scholarships guide to someone and we give away uh, dozens of them every month. Current guide has 79 scholarships that are new four updates and a new section that says scholarships for adults. Check it out there at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash scholarships. Also, uh, don't forget to go out to the YouTube channel. We're doing some really short segment videos about seven minutes long just to discuss various topics. The latest one was uh, talking about wholly owned versus independent regional airlines. You know, what's the difference, especially in this environment that we're in right now? Now let's get to our guest. Uh, uh, Just a really interesting topic. He wrote in a long time ago, about three years ago, discussing type 1 diabetes, and there's something that has changed. His name is Brian Stone. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how you doing, Carl? Wonderful. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, this is great to have you here. I, you know, I've been kind of following you a little bit online. Sounds like seems like you're a very active person uh, from first glance, and, and I'm sure people have said this. I couldn't imagine you having type one diabetes. You're like a very active individual. Well, it came as a pretty big surprise to me when I found out that I had it as well. And in fact, when I was first diagnosed 11 years ago. Uh, at at the age of uh, 46, this was it's a very very uh, late age to get it. In fact, my endocrinologist told me he says he's never had a patient that had acquired it at that high age. Usually, it's uh, children, teenagers, uh, sometimes in your 30s. But 46 is pretty old, and I know there are some cases of even older now. But but uh, he immediately assumed it was going to be type two. And had put me on some medication for type two, and then called me two days later and said, "Stop taking that," and uh, and then uh, sent me down to an endocrinologist to really run some other tests. And that's when they determined it. And that was back in two thousand nine when I found out, and uh, uh, it it was pretty much the death nail to my flying career at the time. So, so you said flying career. Uh, interested to know, you know, what your background is as far as flying, and then we'll kind of talk about. Uh, what you've done with the type one diabetes and being an advocate for those that are trying to get their medical. So where did you where you start flying? Well, I um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado area, and uh, as a kid went to air shows, went down to the hot air balloon rally in New Mexico, and and just really kind of got the love for it there. And then uh, took a trip when I was seventeen out to out to Washington and the Smithsonian, and started reading books about Chuck Yeager and the right stuff. And I just all I had I had the uh, 
I had the bug and I uh, just wanted to fly 747s and, and check all the boxes, fly fighter jets and do the whole thing. And so uh, I decided to, uh, when I went to college to, to uh, pick one that had an Air Force ROTC detachment and uh, try to work it that way to help kind of uh, offset the cost of flying. Obviously, the Air Force is a great way to go for that. Uh, if the timing is right, of course. But, you know, then um, so I graduated from college, went to uh, uh, Air Force pilot training at, at Williams Air Force Base in Arizona back in the mid 80s. And uh, prior to going there, I had between college and my uh, deployment to pilot training, I had about six months to kill. So I I got a uh, internship with my congressman to work as his legislative aide, and so while I was back there, I saw that there was a I, there was a lot of talk about the military services being very heavy on officer staff and on pilots, and so you know I put it in the back of my mind and thought, well, you know, I'm going to pilot training. I'm already locked in. I'm good. I worked so hard to get that pilot slot. You know, you have to score well on tests. You have to you have to do well and be liked and so forth. And to get that pilot slot, it was competitive at that time. And, uh, sometimes they hand them out like candy, but, but, uh, at that time it was difficult. And so I got it and got there. And then as soon as I got into training, well, the rumblings started to emerge that they were, uh, that they had too many and that they were going to be cutting people. And they started whittling away at my class. 75% of my flight training class in the air force was dismissed before even finishing the T-37 phase. I was the last one to get cut in that. And I mean, there were, there was a Embry-Riddle student who was a flight instructor with 800 hours that got cut. I mean, he, clearly he he had good abilities, and 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 uh, so it was disappointing for a lot of us. And uh, so anyway, I got out and uh, was determined not to have to go sell shoes for the rest of my life, and and decided to go to law school and do some other things, not to impugn uh, the character of shoe salesmen, but um, the. Uh, so, so I, I, I uh, had to kind of regroup. It was the real first big letdown in my life, life lesson to, to say that, hey, guess what? You can work as hard as you want on something and pursue a goal. And sometimes there are other factors out of your control. And so it took me a while to get over that. But, but I decided to uh, kind of go around that iceberg and, and pursue flying in a different way. So I got a really good corporate job. And um uh, for for a major uh, auto manufacturer, one of the best in the world, and it was an ambassador type job as a factory rep, and I absolutely loved that job. Did that for a while while I was working on getting my ratings. So I went out there, I had to get. I never got the military rating because I didn't get to finish in the military. I got a hundred hours of uh, twin jet time, which was fantastic, doing aerobatics and formation and all the stuff that you do in training there. And I, I tell you what. Military training is awesome. I really, really am glad that I had that experience and have that under my belt because of the discipline that they teach you in the in the uh, military. And so, I would encourage that to anybody that that would consider it. I would not dissuade you. Um, you know, there's economic aspects to look at depending on the time that we're in, and to consider that. But it's different for everybody. And so, um, anyway, that's what I'll say about that. But so, I, so I went on and. Uh, uh, got my ratings, uh, you know, the, had to get the private, just, you know, I, I had, I had a hundred hours of jet time and I, I started flying the T-37, a twin engine jet, um, with only 10 hours. I had soloed and that's it. The air force paid for me to solo. Wow. And, and they, uh, actually I soloed at seven hours 
And uh, because I think the flight school was getting paid 15 hours of flight time. And they thought, hey, if we solo this guy at seven, we can keep the money. You know, I, th- I think that's kind of how they were working it. But but it uh, <laughs> it was fine with me. And uh, I uh, and I went into the systems training and did really well on all of the written tests there in the Air Force, the whole thing. It was, it was great. You know, so um, I highly encourage it. Um, you just need to have the economy be, be, be right at the time, you know. And so. So anyway, um, to circle back to uh, what I was doing after that, um, I got my ratings, my instrument, my commercial, um, and then was considering jumping into uh, the airlines. And I had a had an interview uh, set up with Continental. But back then, the pay, we're talking the late 80s, early 90s now, early 90s, it was like $20,000 a year to go be a first officer at Continental on a 727. Wow. And and I was making almost triple that with the corporate job that I had. And I had a new family. And so I said, well, you know, dang it. I, I As much as I wanted to do it, I just, just opted out of that. And uh, and then I decided to pursue other passions. Um, and and uh, I mean, I continued to fly and keep that all current. But I also kind of got... Uh, curious about uh the fbi as a career field and the intelligence community and so forth and i i was fluent in spanish and now i could fly planes and i i I had a few skill sets in my toolbox that i could bring to bear i had a degree in international relations which i love that whole thing and and uh so the fbi seemed like a good fit and then i ran into a buddy of mine um who was an fbi agent he encouraged me to absolutely that i would was a perfect fit for it and so especially with my resume that i had built over time and so he uh he helped me uh work work on that and got me pointed out and i read a lot of books before i joined and pulled the trigger on that because i'm giving up a really good job to, to get take a half pay cut it wasn't as bad as the airline but it was still half of what i was making to join the fbi it took uh it took almost five years to get in the FBI because as soon as I launched my application, they were very interested. And then there was a three year hiring freeze. So I'm like, oh, man. And so but I stayed the course. I stayed the course and kept fighting through it and and uh, was able to, you know, get her done. And, and after five years, of course, I just stayed with my good uh, corporate job for 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 a total of what almost nine years um while i was pursuing the fbi job and keeping my flight credentials current and i uh started with the F- fbi and i tell you what uh going to the fbi academy was uh, i have so many awesome stories in the fbi i spent 12 years in the fbi and about half of it was on the criminal side of the house and uh in, investigating 300 different criminal violations at the fbi um investigates healthcare fraud chasing fugitives bank robberies um you name it so uh bank fraud cases and you work with other agent friends within the bureau too on their cases and so i got i got onto the crime scene team very early on and then i got on the flight team right away and uh my boss was kind of looking at me like really you want to be on all these teams i was working almost some weeks 60 to 80 hours a week and i I couldn't get enough of it. I'd, I'd go in on the weekends. I'd be the only one in the office working on my healthcare fraud cases because those are pretty sophisticated and uh, time intensive. But I was able to kind of keep all those balls in the air and I was able to do all of the things that you you kind of would want to do, watching crime shows on TV, be part of the crime scene team, going here, getting called out. Every day was a different experience. And so 
I thrived on that. I loved it. And, uh, and then uh, later in my career, I transitioned over to the intelligence side of the house where you're basically hunting for spies and, and doing, you know, uh, you know, counterterrorism kind of cases. And uh, that was fascinating, too. And I was always a big fan of the spy novel. And, and with my international relations background, uh, I mean, to this day, I couldn't tell you which I liked better. Uh, the criminal side, kicking indoors, chasing people, um, and interviewing, you know, informants and witnesses and victims and 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 uh, perpetrators. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, so it was a great career, and I also got to fly. So I was a uh, since since the first year of my bureau career, I, I was a uh, it was a collateral duty to be a, a pilot, and basically we conduct. A wide variety of missions in the FBI. It's very unique. You know, you never know what what they're going to call you in to do that day, and uh, even on the flying front. But uh, for the most part, what we did, we would we would conduct surveillances with airplanes, and it would be on a wide variety of cases. It could be a bank robbery case. It could be a it could be a, a spy case. Um, I've got to really be involved in some very fascinating, unique cases. And, uh, so, so I loved it and, and I've, I probably logged about, well, I'm at 2,800 hours now. And, uh, most of that was in the, uh, FBI. So, so, and it's very much a, um, multi-crew setting where, you know, you actually log pilot and command second in command because you're required to have two, uh, flight crew members to conduct the mission. And, uh, so it was, uh, uh, you know, it, it's very uh, labor intensive there in the cockpit and uh, you, you divide the roles and and uh, I probably shouldn't say too much about all of that, but you can just imagine that we use specialized equipment and that sort of stuff. But it was and, a lot of fun, though. I mean, it sounds like oh, you really enjoyed it. Oh, it, it was fun. It's the best desk in the, in the world. I mean, being an FBI agent was already the best job you could have. And then and then to, to have the best desk in the FBI up there. In, in the airplane, you know, orbiting, um, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was awesome. It was really neat. And you work with so many different agencies. I mean, for every mission that we would conduct, it's gotta be precise and it's gotta be on time and it's gotta be at a certain place. And you have to coordinate and work with air traffic control in a very different way. Um, you know, we grease the skids in advance so that we get the cooperation that we need to conduct our missions. We sometimes, depending on where you're flying, you have to coordinate with the park service. You got to coordinate with secret service. You got to coordinate with all of these different federal agencies. You're, con you're coordinating with the case agent that's working the case that you're helping them with. We kind of provide a service for those case agents, whether it's a big drug case, you know, a cartel or, uh, whatever it may, it may be. And, uh, so anyway, but not to, to digress too much into the FBI career, I could talk about that for hours, but, um, but in any case, so along about 2009, um, I came down all of a sudden. I, I had my first class medical in August, and then by December, I went into a, a doctor for a for a checkup on on, a, on another matter, and came back and I had to pee in the cup. And he said, "Well, I got good news and bad news for you." And he said, "said the good news is you don't have this other problem, but the bad news is you have sugar in your urine." And I'm like, "Well, what does that mean?" And he says, "Well, it's one of three things." It's either diabetes, diabetes, or diabetes, and I, I, I was like, okay, so, and I didn't know at that time about insulin or whatever, and I'm, and I'm, I'm fit, I'm in good shape, I work out, do jujitsu, and all that, so I, you know, type two is typically something that 
older people get, you know, a little further on than, than my age at 46 at the time. And, 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 you know, obesity is a big contributing factor. I didn't have that going on. So I, I was, I was fortunate to be healthy, but they were confused by it because no one ever gets type one at age 46. And so, so anyway, it turned out that's what it was after some testing and I found out and, and, uh, so that, that just ended my flying career right then and there. And I was at a point in my career where I was kind of looking at having to go into management positions. I mean, you never really have to in the bureau, but they really kind of push you in that direction a little bit when you get, you know, a little more further along in your career there. And, uh, and I had another opportunity come up to, to, uh, do, you know, entrepreneurial opportunity to get into a tech startup with a brilliant scientist friend of mine. So I decided to pursue that. And so I stepped away from the bureau and, uh, thinking, you know, that I was probably going to, uh, at least have an airline career as a backup plan if the tech startup didn't work. Um, and, uh, and then that same week basically is when I found out that I also had type one after I had already just barely left the bureau. So wow. it kind of all ha- happened simultaneously. I'm like, Oh crap. So there must that. Been tough. Well, it was tough, you know, but I mean, it was me. I'm the one rolling the dice and calling the shots and, and, and always willing to just change careers when, and, and do what I want. You know, life is short and, and to pursue, you know, w- where my heart took me. And, uh, you know, regardless of the pay cuts and all, all those kinds of things that you get, but you know, the bureau turned out to be the best thing for me, uh, when I took that pay cut to, to go there. And so I, you know, I thought, well, the airlines could be a good deal. And then of course, at that time, this was 10, 11 years ago, it wasn't the pilot shortage that we have today. I mean, it was still pretty low pay to start. And, uh, but it, but anyway, I had other, uh, I had this other project that I was starting out on. And so, so anyway, so five years go by and I went to, um, the funeral of a famous doctor, an AME that was like a hundred years old. And, uh, he was well known here in the Utah Valley. Uh, and he, uh, when he passed away, I went to his funeral. They had a big wake at the hangar and I ran into the, my new AME who replaced him and who I had been to before. And she, she was just awesome. And she saw me and she says, Hey, Hey Brian, what the, are you cheating on me? I haven't seen you in my office in a while. I said, well, I got type one diabetes and told her the whole story. And she's like, Oh my gosh. And so she said, she told me, she says, Hey, I heard a rumor that the FAA is considering, uh, possibly, uh, first class medicals for type one insulin dependent, basically insulin treated diabetes mellitus is the, is the buzz term ITDM insulin treated diabetes mellitus. So that could apply to a type two that is taking insulin, which some do need insulin. But in any case, she said, so she said, Hey, check this out and see if you can, um, to check the webpage periodically and see it, the FAA's webpage to see if any changes have been made. So I went home from that and immediately called the regional aeromedical uh, deputy. And uh, I think I think she was in Seattle. And she promptly said, no, ain't going to happen. There's not there's not any room. That's, that's just a, probably a rumor. If it was going to happen, I'd know about it, and it's not going to happen, and it's never going to happen. The FAA is never going to give first and second class medicals to an insulin-dependent pilot, period. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Well, my AME said something different, you know, and I was just like so frustrated. Well, four months go by, and my AME reached out to me 
it was the coolest thing. And uh, she uh, she said, hey, check out this website. Here it is. They've, they've launched the protocols. And I couldn't believe it. And so it was like getting new life, you know. That's and uh, so anyway, so I went I, and I immediately jumped through all the hoops and applied to the FA for that thing. I was the first applicant in there. And then I thought, okay, and Miami said, well, you should hear these special issuances take about eight weeks, typically four to eight weeks. And so I was expecting, I was running down to my mailbox every day. I have a post office box that I'd have to drive to and uh, check it every day, you know, with just great anticipation. And this went on for months and I was starting to get frustrated. And then uh, almost a year went by and I was just beside myself. What's the deal? Why? Why the radio silence? I write letters to the FAA, no response. Just complete Nordo, radio silence. And uh, so anyway, then I, uh, dis- I started uh, Googling and I got a hold of, uh, I, 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 I saw an article by a Canadian airline captain, the, the guy who they wrote articles about because he's the one that got this kicked off in Canada 20 years ago where uh, – and he made it happen. And he himself had type one diabetes and flew his entire career with Air Canada flying triple sevens all over the world with type one. And because he got them to change the law in Canada. And so they have allowed pilots with type one to fly in Canada all over the world, including the United States, flying into New York, flying into LAX, flying over the American skies on the way to Mexico, uh, landing here. And the FAA uh, said nothing about that. Uh, but, but they would not let an American pilot do that same thing. So anyway, so that was kind of a frustrating element to this, but, but what it did is it, it, uh, motivated me to pursue maybe getting a medical in Canada. This, uh, this pilot, uh, we, we, uh, started to correspond and he, he suggested, Hey, you know, you can always get your Canadian medical and possibly fly up here. You'd have to convert your licenses and all that. So I started down that road. I got my medical at about uh, two years of waiting. So three years ago, I got my medical from Canada. They actually answer the phone when you call them. They gave me my medical in three weeks. And that was my initial one, which usually takes longer. And then I've renewed it every year since that time. And uh, I have to go to a special Canadian AME and I have to fly and travel to out of state to do that, to find one, because there's not very many of them here in the U.S. that uh, will give you Canadian, or you can fly to Canada and get one uh, and meet a doctor up there. But it's very similar. And then I decided to um, get my, I had to convert my licenses, and then I had to deal with the work permit issue, all of those things before I could get flying up there. But see, Canada didn't have the, the pilot shortage to the same extent that we have it here in the U.S. and globally, Although it was kind of creeping in and I was hopeful that I could land a job in a regional up there. And and that's what motivated me to continue to pursue this while I waited for the FAA. And every year I would submit documents to the FAA unsolicited. I would go get a cardiac. uh, Everything I would submit to Canada, I would submit to the FAA with a nice letter saying, hey, I'm still here, still interested. I did a little experiments for them to show them how I was able to manage my type one. Uh, in in actual airline flight scenarios, I had a buddy of mine who's an airline captain. He, I said, "Hey, give me one of your one of your trip schedules." And so I basically tested my glucose all day long, as though I was on a flight trip, and could show the FAA on a spreadsheet that I was above a hundred 
uh, my blood glucose was above a hundred at every moment of the, of every flight for 20 segments in, in a four day trip. And so I submitted that spreadsheet and I showed him the meter readings because that was part of, uh, the, the protocol at the time was that they wanted to see these, your meter readings. What it is is you, for those who, who don't, who aren't familiar, uh, maybe I should go into type to to a uh, type one and insulin dependency just a little bit, uh, just a brief explanation yeah, of it. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, just to kind of give you some insight. So, uh, insulin is 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 naturally produced. It's a hormone that's naturally produced in the body and the, by the pancreas, by the beta cells in the pancreas. But people who who develop type one, the beta cells, uh, it basically. Um, begin to, an autoimmune situation occurs and it starts to kill off those beta cells that produce the insulin. So your body in a type one does not produce insulin, or at least there might be a few beta cells cropping up and, and, you know, redeveloping and reproducing some insulin, but it's dramatically reduced. And insulin is basically, I, the way I like to explain it in very simple terms is it's kind of like insulin are the security escorts with the nice blue uniforms that are escorting sugar in the bloodstream to the cell, knock on that cell door and say, Hey, uh, I've got some uh, sugar for you. Here's your shipment. <laughs> cell <laughs> opens up its door, sugar goes in and voila, everything's great in your body. Uh, but what happens is if you don't have those escorts with the keys, the, the sugar just bypasses the cells and never gets into the cells. So it just runs around your bloodstream getting thicker and thicker like syrup over time, over days and uh, over a few days. I mean, in fact, you can get if, if you if, if you get a bunch of sugar and, you know, Thanksgiving dinner with all kinds of cakes and pies or whatever, you, you can run your numbers up to 500 and above. 100 is optimal. Now, now you, Carl, you probably your blood sugar, if you were to test right now, um, Assuming you're not diabetic, uh, a, a normal non-diabetic person will usually be right around 85 to 105, right in that range, 115, right in that range, give or take maybe 15 units on each side of that. And your, your pancreas produces insulin to, to bring down the sugar level. And then it also produces glucagon to bring up the sugar level in addition to whatever sugars you're putting in when you eat. So you've got two chemicals that are produced in your pancreas that basically – keep a balance in a normal human. But with, with uh, we're missing the insulin part as a type one. Now, as a type two, the difference is, is that nice blue uniform that the uh, escort is, is wearing is a little gray now. And then the cell says, well, hmm, I see that you have a uniform on, but it's, it's not the right color. So, you know, not probably going to let you in, but maybe the cell next door will. So, so it's basically, it's just kind of a resistance to, to the insulin that, that, that a type 2's body still creates, but it's more resistant to that. And so, so it's a different kind of a problem. And so uh, back in the early 1900s, um, Frederick Banting and another guy and some other scientists working on this, and they basically discovered with doing experiments with dogs and then pigs – in, in the case of pigs, the insulin is almost the same as the human insulin that's created in pigs. And so they realized that, hey, we can save a lot of lives. People just die, and they didn't know why back back before then. And and uh, if, if you got type 1, it was just a death sentence, period. And, and so then once they were able to then 
develop it over the course of about 30 years and create a, a fake insulin or extracting it from pigs, porcine insulin, they called it. Uh, they were they uh, were able to start saving lives and do and of course you know the science went on from there and then and then then companies were learned how to manufacture insulin and it was one of the first first uh, medications to to actually and it's it's, it's on the list of most important uh, medication medical breakthroughs basically so so in any case it's a good thing and. Uh, back in the day, you had to boil needles and guess on how much insulin to take because there's no way to know how much you really need it. So what happens is nowadays, fortunately for me, I got it at a late age um, and didn't have to deal with this since uh, since childhood. So that's the good side for me, one good way to look at it. And so they already have glucometers, meters where you could prick your finger and you do this about eight times a day back then, 10 times, 12 times, how, whatever you needed to do to manage it well. And then you put in a little, uh, put that drop of blood on a, on a little uh, card that you stick in a meter. And voila, it gives you kind of a rough estimate of what your blood glucose is. And if you're at 100, right on. But you don't know how you're trending. You know, you're at 100 now, but, but you just ate or you just worked out. And that changes it. You're going to either drop down or you're going to go up. And so it's constant guessing game. That's why you have to check yourself all the time. You pretty much know when you eat a meal that your sugar is going to go up. So 20 minutes later, it's an art, really, because there's so many factors that impact it. Um, you know, your hormone levels, your stress levels, the, your whether you've exercised, what you've eaten, whether the banana you ate today is riper than the banana when you ate it yesterday is going to be different. And you've got to be able to predict all of these variables and do this little dance all day long. That's really the nuisance of the disease is having to constantly calculate. And and uh, aside from that, it's not a bad disease. It's not painful. Um, quite frankly, if, if, if somebody told me, Brian, your numbers come up and you've got to have a disease, I'd probably raise my hand for this one because, I mean, a disease where it's remedied by eating ice cream and orange juice and candy and cake, man, what's not to like about that? I, I have a sweet tooth. So anyway, but it's, it's, it's not all yeah. bad, but it is constantly <laughs> calculating your mind and it's a moving target, a constantly moving target. So the question that might be hitting people's minds right now would be like, well, then why on earth would we want somebody in that situation flying in an airplane, piloting an airplane? And that was, that was the uh, abundance of caution that the FAA was applying to this for all these years. Now, Canada... They overcame that abundance, that overabundance of caution 20 years ago. Why? I mean, they had the they had the glucose meters back then, but they didn't have the newer technology that we have today, uh, known as a CGM. A CGM is a continuous glucose monitor, and that's what uh, the lucky ones that can at least have good good medical um, ability or money to be able to buy one of these. Are you know, they cost a lot of money? Of money and they're getting a lot cheaper, but mine was about ten thousand dollars. And so, um, but for for somebody who, you know, can't afford that, then they're they might be stuck doing it the old way, but um, with with just the finger sticks. But those finger stick tabs cost a buck and a half, and you're doing ten of those a day. I mean, that adds up quick. And um, so anyway, but but the CGM, what it is, it's a it, it's a sensor that you can insert under the skin, 
and they have little tools that help you do that. And it's, you know, it, it, it picks up on interstitial fluids, which isn't the same as blood, but it does pick up a, a, a more delayed um, diagnosis, so you could say, of the glucose that's in your bloodstream, the, the, gluc- the sugar that's in your bloodstream. And so then it sends that message to an electronic device via Bluetooth, like your insulin pump. I have an insulin pump that also has a CGM built into it. You can have a CGM that's apart from that, that is not an insulin pump. In other words, you can have a CGM and you can read what your glucose is and then still use a needle to stick yourself with some ins- inject yourself with some insulin. That's one old way to do it, and some people are doing it that way because they don't want to be tethered. They want the insulin pump, which is another tether that, that uh, connects from the pump that you keep in your pocket or wherever you or on your belt or whatever, a belt clip. And then that goes to another line, a catheter that is inserted into you. And then you can just uh, control how much insulin you take. I love the pump because I can, I can micromanage it. I can micro bolus, as they say. I can give myself a dosage, small dosages. As I see my CGM graph, what it does is the CGM detects your blood glucose and it plots a dot on this graph about every five minutes throughout the day. So that's a lot. So, so I don't have to stick my finger 10 times a day. I'm basically got this thing in inside of me that's checking it every five minutes of every day. So it's very accurate. And what it does is it gives you trend information. So I can see if it's going up and I can see if it's going down almost to the minute. I mean, live right now. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. So when that came out, that was a huge breakthrough in this last decade, just a few years ago. And, and suddenly it is easy to manage type one if you are not lazy and the key to managing it is by looking at that number all the time so you're pulling the insulin pump out of your pocket your cgm and you're looking at it all the time but now dexcom and i use the i use for anyone that's curious because anyone that's got got type one will probably be curious about what i use i for me it's the cutting edge it's the leading edge of the technology i use the tandem t slim and i use um it's just got a great little interface it's small and it sits in my pocket yes i use the little you know i'm tethered and i sleep with it on the whole thing i just have to when i turn to the left side i gotta grab it and move it over to my left side so that it doesn't pull against me you know and then and then in the night but what's nice about this is uh type 1 diabetics always had trouble sleeping because you'd wake up with a low invariably you drop down in the lows in the night and suddenly when you go low below 100 you will notice it I can tell you when I'm at 90, I can tell you when I'm at 80, at 70, at 60, at 50, 40, et cetera, and I can tell you exactly how fast the onset is. So if you're at one of those numbers, you know, you're, you're going down low, that's where it gets critical. And what happens is, to kind of get back on explaining how, how it, type one, what, what it is like to be diabetic, when you go low in your blood sugar, you notice it. And it starts to build anxiety. Your body just intuitively knows. Like if it happens in the night when you're asleep, I would usually, for me, I would start to have bad dreams and I'd wake up with a nightmare and maybe some sweats. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm low. And then I would run to the fridge, down the stairs and hope I don't trip and then get to some orange juice. But then I, you know, I keep candy by my, by my bedside. I like the, I like the little, uh, uh, chocolate jellies, you know, I found that those work great. And then the jelly bellies, I keep a little baggie of jelly bellies in my flight bag, in every <laughs> compartment of my car, my house, my desk, my drawer. I have these everywhere and they last a long time. I used to do gummy bears for a while, but those would kind of get hard after a couple of months of just sitting around in a coat pocket. And, but now 
the jelly bellies work great because I could have one jelly belly and I know exactly how much one jelly belly is going to impact my glucose numbers. And so I can manage it. And I say, oh, okay, I, this feels like I need about 10. Uh, I'm going to mount out about 10 of these. And if it's a, if I'm feeling a fast onset, I'll, I'll eat them quicker, you know? And, uh, and, and so it used to be, you know, you can, you can kind of tell, I can tell you, I could tell you exactly what my number is below a hundred above a hundred. I could be at 200, 300, 400, which I haven't been in those high numbers in ages since I got the CGM. I I'm rarely over 200. Um, and, uh, which is really nice. And, um, and you never know how you, you, you can't tell by feel when you go above a hundred, at least I can't. Some people say they can, I can't, I can't tell the difference. So, but I know when I'm below a hundred in any case, I, so, so we have to balance right. it out with a bunch of quick math all the time. And, and so you can set this pump to automatically give yourself dosages through the night based on your graph patterns. And every person is different. Every person has different moving targets, different physiology that comes to play on, on them. And so what works for me is completely different from somebody else. I, I take a lot less insulin than other people do. And, and an endocrinologist will tell you. Anyway, so maybe that's enough of going into to that. But Yeah, one of the things, I mean, it's a, that was an awesome explanation of, uh, especially the CGM and, and understanding that is, uh, but you actually were able to, with these protocols, you were able to go to the FAA finally and get this uh, type, this class one medical with type one diabetes. One thing I do want to mention though, is that there, you can use a non uh, CGM protocol for the guys that are looking and gals looking for a, just a third class medical, which is actually a lot of people don't realize you can get, now they can not just get a first second, but obviously with a, with a third class also. The reason I mentioned that there's a lot of flight instructors out there that just get their third class medical. So, so for those listening to flight instructors, remember that this is an, an option for you without having to use a CGM. Not that uh, I'm assuming though, you would, want to use a CGM and from your explanation. Yeah. Well, and, and let me tell you, because I, I did exactly that, what you said, Carl, I, I decided while I was waiting and pursuing Canada and, and, and going, flying to Canada to take written tests to convert my licenses and all that stuff and work on the work permit issue. I also decided, well, I've got a lot of studying to do. I haven't flown for 10 years. I got to get back into this, man. So I said, well, I might as well get my CFI reinstated and I might as well do that by getting the instrument add-on. So I jumped on that right away, and I said, that's just going to help me on those tests to convert my licenses anyway up, up north. So I went out, and I got my, about a year and a half ago, I, two years ago, I started the process, and then um, got about 15 hours of dual in a, in a little DA-20, took the check ride, passed the CFII ride, and started instructing. And so I've been instructing with that. And, and I did it first with basic med. I was one of the first people to get the basic med because I thought, Hey, I could do that. And this was before I even realized I could get a class three. And then once I got the basic med, I could start instructing because you can instruct on basic med as well. But you you have limitations, of course, in the aircraft, you can fly and all that stuff. And so I decided, well, I don't want those limitations. So I, once I learned that I could get the class three, I went and jumped on, on it and got the class three. And so then I've been instructing for the last year and a half, uh, instrument students and, and primary students. It's been great, but here I am, you know, okay, I've got to be at a hundred or above every time I fly. And so it's very simple. I just disconnect my catheter and there's no way I can, I'm going to pump insulin into me. It's not even going to accidentally get into me because right. it's not connected. And so if I, if my numbers run up into the 150 to 200 range, so what? 
I'll, I'll take care of it when I get down from the flight. So it's, it's never been a problem to manage it. And believe me, anybody with the disease, and for this is for pilots, I want to just address this. I think this is an important part of uh, all the other people who are not type 1 diabetics. Um, th- there might be some anxiety about, well, I don't want to fly with a co-pilot that's got type 1. I mean, he's going to freaking go unconscious on me. Why? And then what do I do? Right. Then what? You know? And so to allay those concerns, um, you know, and this is what I told the federal air surgeon when I met with him, I said, look, I have more concern over, over uh, a co-pilot choking on a pastry or a sip of water than, than I would flying with a type one diabetic. Typically the people who have problems with managing type one are people who aren't the type A personalities that a pilot usually is. We're used to looking at systems, checklists after checklist after checklist, monitoring systems, navigational equipment, constantly monitoring stuff. We're used to that kind of thing. So monitoring a CGM, and now I have it on my phone. I have the app on my phone. It alerts me on my phone. I have alarms set you know, very aggressively for me because I like to manage it more aggressively than other people do. But I have an A1C that's that's yeah, below six. I mean, I'm in the fives, and that's hard to do. That takes a lot of work and effort. And my endocrinologist says, "I'll fly with you anytime. You manage the hell out of this." And I know that to be the case with the other guys that have uh, the two others that have recently been approved that I know of, and others that are or about to be approved on this. We're, we're the type of people that we manage it well. We never let ourselves get below 100 in those critical times. You don't want to be uh, below 100 when you're driving a car or when you're doing anything really uh, important. And, and, uh, and, and, and believe me, it's a very uncomfortable feeling when you start to go low. And so it, it, uh, it automatically stimulates your mind to immediately address it. And so, you know, if I even think I'm going low, I'm gro- going for the jelly beans. I've never had to do that when I'm flying. I might do it on the pre-flight or something because I haven't disconnected yet, and I might have let it go a little low in the morning. But but uh, but I'll have it I'll have it where it needs to be for the flight for sure. And uh, and it really um, you got to be very low before you're really impaired. I have never been unconscious or required the help of someone else, an ambulance or anything like that. Which a lot of young people do experience that, especially back in the day before they had CGMs. Now children's mothers can they, they have it on their app when their kids in school and their numbers go low they're calling the school nurse saying hey my daughter's going low run in there and fix it <laughs> get them some orange juice immediately and and it's a really an amazing technology nowadays to really help combat this and i think the federal air surgeon to his credit finally saw the value in that and uh and decided to proceed with with uh pushing it pushing it forward and getting it done and, and so, so, but for pilots that, that are going to fly with another pilot, if, if worst case scenario, the emergency remedy is never more insulin. You're never going to have to inject anyone with insulin. That is the exact opposite of what they need. It would be sugar, 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 just grab them a Coke or some orange juice. But that's never really even happening either anyway, because those pilots are not allowing that to even happen. They themselves do not want to have that incredible discomfort of going low and and there's plenty of time to address it before it actually gets to be beyond to where it's worrisome and and I've, like i say in 10 11 years i've never had it get that low i've had it get low enough to where i have certainly felt the discomfort and the anxiety but never never to the point of of uh 
you know, uh, incapacitation of any kind. But the kind of incapacitation that you would that you would see is, you know, it, it goes into like kind of a, a a stare or a or a, you know, you're just you're you're your thinking processes just aren't as quick. It's almost like being impaired okay, yeah. out with alcohol. So with with that said, you know, it really, I like the explanation you gave us because it really, it actually made me more comfortable with this because I really didn't have the knowledge now that I have for, through that explanation. But as far as somebody that has this now, the the type one, what type of process would you recommend now that you've been through all this and you don't want to wait the five years? What would you recommend to somebody who just got diagnosed or found out they have type one and they want to get a first class medical? I would say if your ambition is to become a commercial pilot of some sort, uh, get the first class medical first to see if you can get it um, before you invest all of that money. Now, I will say this. Most likely you'll get it. Most likely you'll get it. But here are the parameters that the FAA is going to be looking at. They're going to be looking at somebody who does not allow extreme lows or extreme highs. And you know, the highs, it's like, okay, where's the fire? What's happening? You know, big deal. You know, in my opinion, it's never an emergency. I could go up to 500 and be at 500 for for three days and not even feel it or know it and, and not really. I mean, I might not feel at the top of my game. I don't know. I've never allowed that to happen. Uh, so I don't know. Um, I, I, I had a cousin who got to 1,100. He was in the hospital. That's how he found out that he got type 1. And, and, uh, and they tested him and it's like, holy cow, you got syrup running through your veins here and you're about to die. Cause what happens is, is that syrup basically can't fit into your heart capillaries and your kidneys and your eyes. And, and, that, and, and it just, it just, then you, then you're not getting it oxygenated properly. And that's, that's the problem with it on a long-term basis. So that's why you want to keep it nice and lean and thin and, and keep your blood thinned out from the, from the sugars. And you can actually manage it without insulin almost. I hardly, there are times when if I'm working out on a regimen for a week and going on lots of hikes, I don't even have to take hardly any insulin because I'm burning off the sugars through exercise. And that's really a wonderful thing if you have the kind of discipline to do that. And that helps a lot. So to some young kid or, or adult or anybody that gets surprised with this, don't give up on your aviation dream by any means because now... Uh, the floodgates are open. They are going to scrutinize you and they're going to want to see trends uh, within within between 70 and 250 is kind of the current guideline. It's not really specific in the FAA's protocols, to be honest. They really need to kind of dial that in so that we all know exactly what they expect. It's a little bit vague, but what they're going to be looking at is they want to see a high percentage between the range of 70 and 250. I'm at like 96, 97% within that range. That means the other 3% of the time, I'm either lower than 70 or above 250. And it's usually, in my case, it's going to be above 250. I, you know, once in a while, you might have a foray that goes, drops down into the 60s or maybe the high 50s. But you're not incapacitated even at that number. You know, you can still uh, fly the plane technically at that number. And, and of course, you're not allowed to, and you're not going to be doing that. You're not going to let yourself get that low when you're flying. But, but uh, in your personal time, you know, if you, if you want to get it low to help bring your A1C down a little, little bit better on your averages and be more aggressive when you're at home and you're off time, like kicking back with a beer or whatever, well, that's your time, you know? So, but basically they want to see 
that over the course of your entire CGM, so we are kind of monitored by the FA in that sense. So we, to get 97%, I can't just be a clown on my off time. You know, I, I still got to manage this well. And so, so, and you want to for your own personal health and well-being anyway. So it, it, it's totally doable. I'd recommend get a CGM. I, I like the pump and a lot of people use the pump and there are different pumps out there. Uh, word on the street is Tandem's got a really good one. I, I love it. I have not used Medtronic and other brands, so I don't know. And there, there are even other brands, other, I mean, the, the technology is changing every day. They're going to be, who, there may be a patch soon where you just, you know, has your insulin. And pretty soon they'll have pumps that have glucagon as well as insulin. And then it'll, can you, it'll just automatically, seamlessly detect your numbers and fix it automatically. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's right around the corner. And, and so, yeah, keep, pursue the career. And even if you don't get the first class medical right out of the gate, don't let it give up, don't give up on it. Cause it might take some time for them to, I, although I, they got to streamline now that we find it's taken five years for me to get this five years. There were some lawsuits. There were some, you know, there, there's some, some loud door banging going on. Uh, at least on my part, I've written a lot of letters, and I know others have also been kind of pushing on them a little bit to make this happen. The American Diabetes Association, the ADA, I've, uh, there should be a link in the show notes for you right. about that. Uh, they have really been a champion in this cause for a long time. All the airline pilots, uh, unions, and ALPA and all these guys, they've all been uh, for it. Uh, five years ago, they were for it. They did an initial study back then when they first produced the protocol but there was a new federal air surgeon that kind of came on board, and I think that that might have been where they, you know, they weren't necessarily for it as the previous guy was, and that's why it went radio silent. And so, uh, but but he's turned the corner, and um, or or whatever uh, administrator at the top uh, case may be, as the case may be, um, they did finally come around. But I stayed the course for five years and got there, and and so I'm very happy to be here. Um, I took my physical back in November and I just got awesome. my medical two days ago Congratulations! and, and it expires. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It expires in six weeks, but, 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 uh, because it's from the date of the physical and, and so I'll have to go and do the renewal process almost immediately, but I'm just glad to be fighting on a different battlefield. Now, now that battlefield is the job front because just as I finally got there with the whole pilot shortage roaring and i got i could almost name my my job uh covid has come in and kind of turned it all up on its head but hey different scenery different battlefield i'll, I'll sort that out now so i'm i'm basically in the job market i i put it sent out 12 uh applications yesterday and it'll be interesting to see what kind of feedback i get and um i think this is probably a time where maybe the freight industry is the way to go just for job security and maybe that's where the openings are, but you know, yeah. got to be creative. In this yeah, and business, I, I hope you, you know. get something right now, obviously it's tough. And even the freight world's kind of slowed down a little bit, just kind of wait and see what's going to happen, you know, as far as applications are concerned, but that'll open up again uh, eventually. It's like, and we've been through this before SARS and bird flu. We've been, you know, nine 11, et cetera. Yeah. But th I mean, this is a tough one. I, I get it, but your battle uh, was on, in a different field and you know, you're, you really went through this process and you persevered. And I, I really appreciate that about you and the fact that you stuck with it. You know, the whole explanation you gave of this was awesome. And I really, if, if you're listening and you're, you're, 
really interested in helping somebody else out, learn about diabetes, this is a good resource. You talked about links. We'll have them in the show notes. I find that the best one, when I started researching diabetes, was the ADA. Uh, American Diabetes Association, they have cool pictures and stuff. And they have that timeline right. about how this all came about. I thought that was neat. Yeah. Yeah, that was excellent, too. That's why I put that in the show notes. And then uh, there's Facebook groups out there. There's an insulin-treated diabetics uh, Facebook group. And this is global. So Canada did it 20 years ago, and they've never had a problem or an issue with any pilot in 20 years. So that should help allay some concerns of, of your airline community out there and your co-pilots out there. But but also uh, the UK has it. Ireland, I think, just adopted it. I know Israel has one case in their military where they've allowed a, a, a waiver, I think. And and so more and more, and, and their pilot, Australia is about to get it. In fact, one of their federal air surgeons, they have four of them, I believe. One of them is a, is a, a type one himself. He lost his uh, 747 career just as it was getting going. And decided to go into medicine after that and became a federal air surgeon for Australia. And they are going to probably be implemented. So he, these people have been been watching very closely what the FAA is going to do. And to the FAA's credit, they have a lot less restrictions on their protocol than some other countries do. Some of the other countries have uh, some very cumbersome aspects to it. Yes, you can fly, but it's a little bit more cumbersome. Uh, and some maybe less so. But uh, it's it's the globally this is now going to impact pilots all over the world. So if you're listening from another country, I would say uh, keep checking the web page because uh, of your country because it's it's uh, coming it's coming. Yeah, it is. It's time. It's time to not discriminate against diabetics anymore. It's, there's just no need for it. The technology is there, and the training and the ability to manage it is just incredible. Yeah, I wonder these days. who the you know I was going to do my research before this and I didn't get a chance. Uh, who the first? Uh, what what was the first country to allow type one diabetics? I don't know if you know the answer to that one. Canada. I I'm thought pretty so, sure but, it was but we'll we'll research yeah. that. But I'm pretty sure. I mean, they were in the forefront of this. I remember with from friends. One thing we do have to note, though, that there are protocols for type two diabetics. So you know, we've been talking type one. Remember that. I, I mean, I have friends that have been flying for the airlines for I know 20 years as a type two diabetic. So that's already yeah. out there. Um, and mm -hmm. the, yeah, it depends exactly. if you have insulin dependency. That yep. still killed those guys. But now this will remedy that as well. I think they're going to have a little bit different. Uh, dealings with their endocrinologists in terms of their, you know, regimen and what they need to to do to to work with it. I, it's different. It's different than type one. Similar but different. And and uh, so, Brian, so, the, before we wrap uh, up here, and this has been great. Um, it, my question was: It worth it? Oh, absolutely. You know, it took me five years to become an FBI agent, and I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad I took it. I'm so glad I fought that fight. I'm so glad that I have fought this fight. I'm just a stubborn guy. I just don't give up. I'm 57 years old, and most people are looking at me like, "What? You want? Why are you even bothering with this? You know, it's like just pick another career. You know, I I, I don't know. This is what I want to do. I do what I want to do, and I I've, I've just always pursued my dream, whatever it is. Life is short, and you just need to go for it. Now there will be roadblocks because there are other things you can't control. And I was about button up against the, you know, giving up on this one for a minute. I was kind of like, man, but I, I kept seeing light at the end of the tunnel and I'm like, we got to push this through. We got to get, we, we, this has to change for not just me, but for everybody. And, uh, 
So anyway, I'm just so very pleased that the FA has stepped up to it. And there were many people in the FA that were behind this from the beginning, but you know, the constraints above them, uh, perhaps, you know, I mean, they got to work with what they, they got to work with. And so, but there are a lot of champions within the FAA. I certainly don't want to impugn the character of all of good, hardworking men and women in the FAA that have a very hard job to do and on so many different levels. Uh, the, the ADA has been just uh, incredible. And then all of us people, CNN just published an article on uh, two of my cohorts uh, that got their medical along with me this week. Um, and you can read about that today on CNN's uh, news feed. But um, yeah, so we've all been really, really trying to help the FAA get through this and to see it for what it is and success. So yeah, it is a champagne evening, evening and I'm, I'm happy for you. Uh, one thing I want you to do for us, uh, for the listeners too, is keep us informed as to how things do progress uh, as far as not just your career, but everything else with the FAA. And then uh, if there's anything else that comes up, we'd love to use you as a resource if we could. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. I'm all about that. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on. I think it's an important issue, at least for, for diabetics and uh, for type ones, um, and also for uh, for for other pilots who are now going to be yeah. f- getting to fly with us. Awesome people. <laughs> yeah, so, I think it's terrific. Yeah. <laughs> well, Brian, once again, <laughs> thanks for coming on. And uh, if you have questions, by the way, if you're listening, feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. We'll forward them on to Brian. Uh, he'll get back to you or us, and we'll read the response on here. And uh, we definitely will will uh, will be watching you, Brian. So appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, folks, if you're listening right now and, and you've made it through this explanation as far as uh, being a diabetic and the process, I mean, I, I know there's a lot of technical details we went over. Please give this podcast to somebody you know that has diabetes and somebody who has type 1 that's thought about flying. I think it'll be really encouraging for them. And I hope you've learned a lot uh, about perseverance and a little bit about the, the career, even in uh, as, fi- as flying uh, with the FBI. Uh, that was quite interesting, and we may have them come back on and talk uh, really specific about that. But one thing I really think is important is that to do your research, you know, after you finish this podcast, one of the most important things to do is not just let it sit there. Uh, and and just hit stop. What you need to do is you need to start the process of moving forward in your career. And the best way to do it is take action and take action now. Please do something. You know, it could be something small. It might be reading an article, clicking on one of the links that are in the podcast notes so that you can give it to a friend that might have type 1 diabetes. Or it might be grabbing a book, watching a movie. Right now, YouTube is a big resource for people that are watching and trying to get back into aviation by living vicariously through other people. But I need you to do something today to move forward in your career. We'll talk to you next episode and safe flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.